Father, we praise you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, attend the proclamation of your holy word this morning by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and among us. And we thank you for this gift in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Um, Just a couple of more things to consider uh, with regards to prayer. Um, Dwayne is suffering from some kind of uh, bronchial uh, breathing issue and will be treated on Thursday, so keep Dwayne in prayer about that. And uh, the Pecorelli family, Tony and uh, Danielle, are not here this morning, and they, again, have had various illnesses and work challenges, and um, keep them in prayer, um, financial challenges. Once they start during this season when people can't work, it's very hard to catch up. Keep Tony and Danielle in your prayers this, this week as well. I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 1 yet again, and I'm going to read this morning from Romans chapter 1, verses 28. Um, I know the notes say I'm going to read through verse 3 and chapter 2. Well, why don't we do that? I won't have time to comment on all of that this morning. Some of that will be picked up next week, but for context, I'll go there. So, chapter 1 of Romans, verse 28 to uh, (coughs) verse 3 in chapter 2. And so Paul writes about human society and civilization, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you judge You who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Father, we praise you for this fearful statement about our human condition, O Lord. We know it is the truth because it is divine assessment of our race. Father, in Jesus' name, let us find an escape from the judgment of death upon the sins of man. Let us find them in the gospel of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The apostle will make the point all throughout the book of Romans that sinners are worthy of death. That's the punishment. Friends, every sin receives capital punishment. 
apart from Christ, there's no remedy for this. It's just such a fearful place in Scripture, but he's graciously given it to us. It's the grace of God that he warned us. He didn't have to warn us. He could have been a father who was so disgusted with the rebellion in his children that he turned away and looked away and gave nothing back and left us to ourselves. But instead, he gave us these warnings, as any loving father would do. Would you tell your son the truth about his sins, or would you let him wallow in them and destroy him? So even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, you know, we're a society that we think we just get to do what we like. They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. It's almost petty when you think about it. When's the last time you talk to someone about God? They just don't want to talk about that. They don't want God in their thinking. Because once you start thinking about God, you start thinking about requirements. You start thinking about good and evil. You start thinking about life and death. And we don't like to retain that in our knowledge because we're on our busy way. But because they didn't retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. He decided not to retain them in his knowledge is basically what Paul is saying here. So he gave them over to a debased mind, meaning they can't think right anymore. And so they do those things that aren't fitting. And all this while, when you had your wonderful reason, you thought that you were so smart, and all the while it was a gift of God. I always say, everything you have is a gift of God. Those clothes you're wearing today, very stylish, gift of God. The car that's out there waiting to whisk you home to a nice dinner, unless you're eating here with us, a gift of God. The home you go to, the oil in your tank, that horrible fossil fuel that keeps you warm is a gift of God. And the heat's a gift of God. And the bed you lie down in tonight's a gift of God. And that breath in your body is a gift of God. And someday, he'll take it back. And this is what the apostle's trying to tell us. So friends, in the universe, there's this process, there's this progression. There. Call it a spiritual law, a spiritual law that's at work in the sons of disobedience. That's a name Paul used for sinners, sons of disobedience. And that's the focus of this passage in Romans. What is the human condition? This is the place in Scripture where you go to find out. You want to talk about the great doctrines of grace, the first of which speaks of the condition and the nature of man. It's called total depravity, and this is where it's taught. So this is what we're in now. This isn't a happy subject, but we have to go through it to get to the happy subject. It's never happy when the Bible talks about us. It only gets good when he talks about Christ. So it's, in fact, less of a progression and more of a regression, actually, right? With regard to the moral state of man and his beliefs and behaviors. It seems when God pulls away, we only go down. We don't get better. Now, I put in your notes this morning a little parenthetical statement. Isn't it strange that there's a popular movement in our time that calls itself progressive? While the Spirit of God declares unequivocally that the things that the progressives champion are actually not progressive at all, but regressive, and will take us backwards morally? As we've observed in the previous passages, there is a downward spiral spiral of human depravity, of human morality. It's inevitable, but really it's almost inevitable. There is a way out, and Paul gets to that, but he has to take us through this dark place first. In fact, apart from the P 
periodic intervention of God in, in civilization, we would descend into the most abominable state of human depravity imaginable. It's hard to imagine what we would be if God just left us to ourselves completely, forever. But the church, friends, and when I say the church, I'm talking about the active, praying, practicing body of believers in Christ. We should consciously become the instrument for the reconstruction of moral values in our time. And when I say consciously, I mean we have to decide to, but it begins here. Judgment begins at the house of God, Peter wrote. We have to be the example of grace in the world. Peter wrote, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Nothing less than human society is at stake. And so we have this process showcased here in the passages from Romans. And any student of history, friends, I could tell you you're all students of history because you read your Bible. And the Bible's one-third history. Any student of history ought to be able to see the ebbs and flows of God's intervening hand of grace in in former times. Did you ever read the book of Judges? It's a good read. I would do that if you haven't done that. The book of Judges lays out the course of the human condition as this seemingly endless cycle of blessings and cursings. Now at the top of the cycle, if you picture it as a wheel, right? It's a cycle, so there's no beginning of the cycle. That's why we call it a cycle. But at the top... There's a society turning from godly morality to idol worship and licentiousness. God withholds his grace for a time and stands aloof while society plunges into godlessness and depravity. And what happens when that happens? Desperate people cry out for God to return to them. And he eventually hears their cries in the book of Judges. He hears their cries for help. And so he intervenes again by inserting heroic moral leaders to reform them. Haven't seen that in some time. Society reforms for a season or so. Do you know what corrupts mankind more than anything else? The blessings of God. We get corrupted. And the reason is we start to believe we deserve them. I'll get to that. I don't want to get ahead of the the process here. So desperate people cry out for God to return them. He eventually hears their cries and he intervenes and sends moral leaders, to reform them. Society reforms for a season or so. But as soon as the grace of God and His merciful material provision is enjoyed long enough, long enough for a satisfied populace to take it for granted, right? Man again descends into a depraved humanism. And we begin again to see ourselves as the author and maker of our own blessings. You know, there's an old saying that Prosperity skips a generation. Have you ever heard that? Prosperity skips a generation. Well, the, the idea of it is you take a, a very wealthy tycoon who's a self-made man, all right? And he's made million, billions of dollars like they did in the last century in oil or railroads or something. They make billions of dollars. And the man works hard and he has a work ethic and he understands what it takes to build up a great fortune. But the children grow up rich. They don't know what it took. For the father to do. They take it for granted. They think they're, they're entitled. And so according to the adage, they blow the fortune. And then the, and then the third generation has to remake it again for themselves. So it, it skips a generation. Their children grow up poorer or see what it's like for, to lose a fortune. 
And so they're motivated again to receive it, and it's kind of what we see here. And so society reforms for a season or so, but only so long as people begin to take it, take their blessings for granted. And we see the blessings as something we're entitled to. In some cases, such societies are given over to their enemies. You go into the Old Testament, you'll see that God allowed the enemies of Israel to overtake them. The Assyrian um, civilization overtook Israel, and then later Babylon came in and took Israel and Judah and Assyria, right? And it just kept going on. Babylonians were taken by the Persians, the Persians by the Greeks, the Greeks by the Romans, and now Jesus comes during the Roman era. And so you see, sometimes God plunges us into the hand of our enemy, who's worse on us than we are on ourselves. They take away everything. Ever take your, your language for granted? One of the curses in the Bible is you lose your language, you lose your culture. You're not a people anymore. You speak the language of strangers, it says in Scripture. And so, in some cases, societies are given over to their enemies. They're harder on them than they are on themselves, and then the whole cycle begins again. And this cycle's documented as occurring repeatedly throughout ancient history. The ancient history of Israel, and by extension, all of human history. Did you ever read Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon? It's talking about the Israelites being led away into a foreign land, losing their identity. You know, by the time Jesus came into the world in the Roman era, in what we call the first century, that Hebrew was a dead language. Nobody spoke it anymore. Jesus didn't speak Hebrew. I mean, they learned it in rabbi school, but it wasn't like the language of their land. They could read the Old Testament, which was written in in Hebrew, but it was a dead language. No one spoke it anymore. It was already dead for hundreds of years by the time of Christ, who spoke Aramaic, which is an, an Arabic dialect. And that's because they were plunged into this cycle of being owned by their enemies for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so what the apostle is showing us in this passage is that thanklessness leads to unrighteousness. All right? Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. And what is thanklessness? The, the, the idea that, well, I don't need to thank anybody for anything. What is thanklessness but a sense of entitlement? It's arrogance. And God sees it in us. For why would we be thankful for what we feel entitled to or what we feel we've earned on our own? Surely the basics of life may be taken for granted, right? And that begins to be the spirit of society. But the spirit of entitlement or thanklessness leads somewhere. And that's what Paul's showing us. This thanklessness leads somewhere. And the apostle's not remiss to show us exactly where it leads, It leads to a level of divine offense whereby God can only save human society by withdrawing from it and letting us see who we are apart from his presence among us. Why does God withdraw? Because mankind uses even his blessings to corrupt themselves. He gives us riches and we use the riches to corrupt ourselves. The withdrawal of God is the withdrawal of grace. God goes, grace goes with him, friends. And what's grace? Well, I'm going to define it a little bit differently than you've heard it before, but grace is that ineffable, meaning indescribable seasoning of divine love that keeps us from becoming as evil as we can possibly be. It seasons us. It sweetens the human condition. It's grace. It softens your anger. 
it quells your sin nature somewhat. Even in our natural depravity, there's no well-informed Calvinist who would say that human beings are destined to be as evil as they can be, thankfully. There is this overriding sense of divine protection in the world, and there's this restraining hand, which is what? It's a fatherly restriction. God's restraining his children from doing evil. You know, I was with my kids a lot when they were growing up. We homeschooled them. And, you know, always fighting society. We were talking last night, some of us were together, and there's, there's these two opposing forces in the world. There's peer pressure and parental pressure. Now, I know that I've never seen peer pressure work really good for quelling sin in a young person. It usually helps proliferate it, right? So I'll go for parental pressure. You know, there's this sort of psychological belief that kids are good for kids and adults are bad for kids, but I don't believe that. I believe kids are bad for kids for the most part, and adults for the most part are good for kids. So I was with my kids a lot because I always noticed when they were with me, they didn't sin. They only sinned when I wasn't there. A fatherly restriction. You know, it's, it's interesting, you, you, if, as you tune into um, conservative media today, you know, with the COVID thing, People were home, and they learned what's being taught in the schools, and they're all up at arms about what's being taught in the schools. I knew that was being taught in the schools 30 years ago. I tried to tell people, no one cares what I think. But now they're finding out because this happened, right? So conservative media is all mad because they're teaching this bad stuff, but then they're mad over here that the kids can't go to school. I'm like, make up your mind. Why do you want them there if it's to teaching them bad stuff? That I don't get, but that's an aside. So in the case that the apostles here suggesting... Mankind is edging ever so purposefully to that dreaded abyss of having the graceful hand of God lifted off society. And so the father turns his face away in disgust. He's had enough of human arrogance. In fact, in the example he offers of his time, that's exactly where he's claiming that they are. Paul said as much when he went into Athens in Acts chapter 17. He went in and told them. You're living in ignorance. You don't know God. I'm here to preach to you the God you don't know. You have all these other gods that think they're gods, but I'm here to tell you about the true God. In fact, in the example he offers of his time, that's exactly where we are, and I've made the case that in our time, our society too is in the throes, at least the early throes of divine withdrawal and a withholding of the hand of blessing upon the land. I think that's where we are. I've said it for a long time. We live in a Romans 1 world, and I think the emblem of that is people have lost the ability to reason. Society's unreasonable. They say things that everyone knows is false, and either they believe it or they pretend to believe it. And I don't know which is worse. And with that withdrawal goes such things as reason. Reason goes out the door with God withdrawing. Compassion goes out the door. These are all gifts of God. What about justice? What about reverence for God? Certainly that's gone. What about lawful due process for alleged crimes? Friends, today we have favored crimes. All you have to do is get accused, and you're therefore guilty. Do you know what confusion that, that is? Do you know what injustice that is? That all you have to do is accuse somebody of something, and they're done, and their life is canceled? It's absurd. Friends, with no due process, there's no process at all. Remember that. And that's all the depraved mind. Who could possibly think that someone accuses a man of something, he's therefore guilty? Now, it's one thing if there's several people standing there witnessing the crime. Even the Bible talks about two or three witnesses, right? But no one's there. You're just accused. And that's it. You have to suffer the 
consequences of the accusation as though it were true. Friends, that's the depraved mind. You've got to know it's going to come back around to you. And so the depraved mind is what the apostle's speaking of here. We shall see it most clearly in society's insistence on putting what Isaiah called evil for good and good for evil. Light for darkness, darkness for light, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. If man would empty his consciousness of God, God will remove the gift of reason. Reason, it's thought by pagan philosophers, it's thought by idolaters, and by God-haters. Reason is thought to emanate from man. It doesn't. It's only there because God inserted it in the first place. We're not, by nature, reasonable creatures. We've lost the spiritual sense that the basic functions of reason are a gift of God and not of ourselves. Hence the declaration of Paul where he says, they changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. That's what man did in his mind. He can't really change God, right? He changes. He doesn't like to retain God in his knowledge, so he exchanges himself for God, becomes his own God. God. So God gives them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Then he spends the rest of the chapter telling us what those things are. So we should not be surprised when we look out on the landscape of the times and find that our arrogance against God actually took us somewhere. We should not be astonished when society becomes what the Spirit of God foretold it would become. And so we have verses 29 and 31. This gets tedious. This was... um. A difficult set of notes to stick with and put together. A couple of people had asked me, are you going to go through the sins at the end of Romans 1? I went through several commentaries, and two of the great commentators sort of glossed over it as though everything was self-explanatory. But I think we have to re-explain what is meant by these things. For one reason, we're not Greek speakers, and this was written in Greek. So verses 29 through 31, they do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, Envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. Some of your Bibles might say slanderers for whisperers. Think about how that works, right? They become violent. They become proud. Boasters. They brag about their evil. Inventors of evil things. They're creative about evil. Make up new ways to be evil disobedient to parents. Now, our society has certainly put that in a place that is sort of like, oh, well, boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. I don't know if there's a thing that says that, but you know what I mean, right? Oh, she'll grow out of it. I hope so. Disobedient to parents is put in there. Undiscerning, that's the parent who doesn't recognize the child disobedience is a bad thing. They're undiscerning. Then there's untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, I dare say that if every one of us cannot find himself in this long list of unrighteous acts, then we're surely to find ourselves in the next chapter because he's listing the self-righteous acts. This is about unrighteousness, and all of us righteous people can say, yeah, don't do those things. I watch Fox News, and I know that's wrong. <laughs> we're all righteous. We're home approving to the same things. Friends, let me tell you, I'm going to vote Republican most, most of the time, but I do not expect them to save me or this country. I just really don't. So he's going to go into self-righteousness. If you don't find yourself here in this list, bear with me. We'll get you next week. 
You see, the difficulty with the book of Romans is that it must be taken as a whole if the apostle, if the gospel's to be fully articulated and rightly appreciated. Paul doesn't mind taking his time getting to the place where Christ comes. He wants to show us our need for Christ. So if we can't find in these early chapters our own personal need for Christ, we're unlikely in later chapters to find ourselves exonerated for our sins. Friends, if we don't recognize the sins that we have, we have no need for Christ. For what have we been exonerated from if not the common sins of all people, of all societies, of all times? Friends, I'm here to tell you today there's no new sins. Solomon says repeatedly, nothing new under the sun. All sins are old sins. They come in new packages sometimes. They were here since the beginning. They come in new packages. They come, uh, but the contents in the bottle is still the same, in the box, right? We should also keep in mind that every list of sins of this sort in the New Testament is a partial list. So you're like, whew, I'm not there. I don't do any of those things. Hallelujah. I'm, I'm free. It's a representative list. Though there were surely other offenses that could be named, the list ought to leave us with a sense of the filling up of the cup of God's wrath. It is therefore a worthwhile study to investigate the nature of the offenses listed. And he begins with unrighteousness. Now that's sort of an overall condition of man. Unrighteousness. And I give you the Greek here if it's useful for you. Adikia is unrighteousness. You may find the actual meaning of it useful in interpreting the pop political culture and sensational media messaging of our time. You notice the media is always trying to get you fired up? I don't care which side you're on. It's always trying to get you fired up and mad about something. And I love it when they say, if true, once they say, if true, I switch. I go back to Mike, uh, what's his name? Selling the pillows. I go back over there. Because if true, and what are you doing? You're borrowing fear from tomorrow's possibility so I can be fearful about tomorrow today. The very thing God told us not to do, right? Not enough fear today. If true, you should be fearful that you know, all these other things are going to happen. And that's how they get you tuning in tomorrow. Well, I hope that fearful thing doesn't happen. I've been fearful all night long. Let's see if it happens. It didn't happen yet. But that doesn't matter because I'll just be fearful for tomorrow already. So unrighteousness, adikia. Adikia means, first, it means injustice. Second, it means iniquitous or iniquity. And what's iniquity, friends? Well, it's sin. Iniquity is sin. It's a synonym. Iniquity is immoral or grossly unfair behavior. That's iniquity. And it uses, I'm quoting the lexicon now, every variety of deceit. Aren't you amazed sometimes that the, the, that the agencies that are supposed to inform us, deceive us, and they find new ways to deceive us all the time? Deceit, such as unrighteousness uses, is every variety of deceit. It goes on to say, Antichrist and his ministers will not be restrained by any scruple from words or deeds calculated to deceive. Now, you've got to know that Antichrist has a lot of tools in his toolbox to deceive, right? And so we may truly say that as far as unrighteousness is concerned and deception is concerned, the devil is in the details, all right? That's from the, that's from the, um, the lexicon. We read from Paul elsewhere where he says the same thing. The Bible says the same thing. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Now, I want you to know, Satan is more of a title than a name, although we've sort of made it a name. Like we say Jesus Christ as though it's his name, right? Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. Satan means the adversary, 
the lawless one, okay? So the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Not all wonders are from God. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. And why did they perish in deception? Because they did not receive the love of the truth, the Bible says, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they will believe the lie. That's the God leaving and putting, allowing them to wallow in the depraved mind that they were born with. God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Friends, it's not just about seeking truth. It's about loving the truth when you find it. The lexicon goes on, um, goes on to say that unrighteousness is characterized by a distaste for truth. When you hear the truth, you don't want to hear it. And distaste for truth is the precursor of the rejection of truth. Unrighteousness begins in the mind that says this. Think about this. I don't like what you say. It is therefore not true. You see that all the time, right? It conflicts with my narrative. You might be sitting here right now saying, I don't believe. Who does this guy think he is up here telling me I'm this evil in this list here? I know you don't like it. I don't like it either. But I love the truth of it. I'm okay with the fact from who it came from. It came from God. I don't like what you say, therefore it's not true. You've, you've heard that. You've probably said it. This is the attitude of a culture, friends, of a society that shakes a fist at God who calls evil for what it is and is the only authoritative arbiter of good and evil. It says to God this. It's like saying to God, your judgments are wrong. They must be because they conflict with my judgment. The signal quality of the unrighteous is that their personal feelings are their God. I like to feel good. And this preacher's making me feel bad. I don't like it. Imagine how they felt in Rome, getting this from an apostle. When the righteous speaks of unrighteousness, they speak of things that offend God. When we speak of the unrighteous, we're the righteous, by the way. Those of us who trust Christ, God calls us righteous. Doesn't mean we act righteous all the time. It means he declared us righteous. And in the future, he'll carry us through and finish the work which he began, right? But when the righteous speaks of unrighteousness, they speak of things that offend God. When the unrighteous speaks of unrighteousness, they speak of things that offend themselves, whether or not they offend God. Friends, sometimes when people offend me, they're also offending God. And sometimes they're just offending me, and I ought to just buckle up and deal with it. If you're offended by the judgment of God, it's because you lack the love of God. You don't recognize how loving it is that he bothered to warn you at all. If you, you know... (laughs) The father who spares the rod hates his son. You know, I said one time many years ago to a a Bible school student, he had come back from Bible school, and we were talking, and he had some kids, and the kids were acting up, and I said, you know what the saying says, right? The man who spares the rod, and he went, spoils the child. And I said, what school did you go to again? (laughs) Hates his son, and the man that loves his son disciplines him promptly, right? That's what God does. He shows us how to be a father. If you're offended by the words of a loving father, it's your innate sense of rebellion at play. And the same is true of God, our Father. Now, friends, I've been called judgmental. I know it's hard for you to believe that. But I've been called judgmental because I hold to God's standard of human sexuality. Now, I know everything goes today. 
man with man, woman with woman, a uh, woman with a man and a woman. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it goes to dogs and cats. I don't know where it's headed. No, I, I think, I, you know, I, I, that used to be a, a joking thing to say. Now it's there. Um, but I just hold to the very simple thing that God gave us, the one that he created. And I've been called judgmental because I hold to God's standard of human sexuality. I tell people that when you're a person of faith, you let go of your own judgments regarding good and evil. You trade those in, right? And you adopt a higher code than mere sinful human feelings. That's what it means to have a faith. I'm all done deciding what good and evil is. I'm going to look it up and find out what it is, and I'm going to believe it when I find it. That's what faith does. I don't judge homosexuality as evil. I don't have to. I know it's evil because God already judged it. And by the way, just so you're clear, it's not just Christianity that does that. There's no major religion on earth that accepts homosexual relations as honorable before their God. And you can go to Islam, and you can go to Hinduism, and you can go to Mormonism, Judaism, right? And Christianity. No major religion accepts that. It's obviously against nature, and nature's God. It's always been that way. That's the majority view. You wouldn't know it is, but it is. So I don't judge it as evil. I don't have to. I know it is because God judges it to be so. The practical application of faith is that the faithful are those who agree with God. The next thing, sexual immorality. Imagine what the Greek word is. Pornia. Wouldn't it be pornia, right? It means illicit sexual intercourse. In your Bible, your Bible, it might have said fornication. That's all right. The lexicon goes on to note in some of the verses that um, pornia includes fornication. It could include adultery, but it's distinguished from adultery in Mark 7.21 where we read, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, etc. In other words, Jesus spoke of them as different sins, fornication and adultery. Generally speaking, adultery is a sin of unmarried people. Oh, I'm sorry, a sin of married people, right? Adultery. You cheat on your husband, it's adultery. Vice versa, it's adultery. Fornication is the sin of unmarried people. In other words, you're unmarried and you're taking a blessing that is God gave only for married people. That's, generally speaking, the difference, all right? If there's any sin in Paul's list that characterizes the times in which we live, it must be fornication. Casual sex and cohabitation between unmarried people is seen today as no big deal, right? It's no big deal, and it's generally excused as financially expedient or practically necessary. Well, you don't understand. It's cheaper to get one apartment than two. I get that, so get married and get one. That's all you have to do. If you're a Christian, that's what you have to do, right? This is our culture's dumbing down of sexual sin, and we're um, accessories to it. It's generally approved of by the masses, even the masses within the churches. It elicits a small reading on our moral seismic indicators, and yet it's as offensive to God as it ever was. And our tacit cultural acceptance of it is evidence of the next sin on the list. Wickedness. It sounds like um, pornia. It's pornaria. Wickedness. It refers to a state of satisfaction with our own evil acts. Some people love being evil. There's an ancient teaching on this subject. You ever notice some of these... um, these um, hero films, I, I don't know, um, Iron Man or, you know, some of these films where there's a, uh, what do you call it, a great Avenger or something. The evil guy just loves being evil. Resonate? 
He can't, he, it makes him happy to inflict pain. Um, well, that's basically what wickedness is. It's not a, um, a uh, or actually, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. It refers to a state of satisfaction for our own evil acts. And there's an ancient teaching on this subject that goes back to classical times. It's not a biblical teaching, but it's useful in a discussion of human morality. And it comes from Aristotle, who's not a great believer in God, but he did, un- he did study human morality. All right? And you may remember, every man coming into the world receives a measure of grace and understanding of good and evil, right? So Aristotle gave us what's called the Nicomachean Ethics. Nicomachus was his son and his father, and no one really knows if the Nicomachus of the Ethics is one or the other. But it is one, of the, one or the other. So the moral hierarchy comes to us in levels of morality that Aristotle delineates, and I think it's useful, and I've used it before. All right, the lowest level, there are four levels. So down on the bottom, there's what's called the morally depraved person. Now, who's the morally depraved person? He's the class of people who does evil because he loves doing evil. That's what gives him his greatest joy, inflicting harm and maliciousness on someone else. Gives him joy. The next up the ladder is the morally weak. This refers to those who do evil But they don't love it. They wish they had the power to resist it. In fact, Paul wrote of this in Romans 7. Paul said, For to will is present with me, but how to perform perform what is good I do not find in myself. You remember that from Romans 7? We'll get there in a few years. Um, (laughs) Further up on the list, right, from the morally weak, is the morally strong. And this class includes those who know what is right They do what is right, but they extract no pleasure from their good behavior. These are Pharisees, friends. Pharisees do what is right, right? But there's no pleasure in it. They just want to do what is right so they can make you do it. So doing right for them is a moral struggle. It's done to please others. It does not please them. That's the morally strong. Now on the highest list, the highest level of the list is the morally virtuous, virtuous. And these are those who do right because they find pleasure in righteousness. For the Christian, the Christian is the morally virtuous person. He does right because he knows it pleases God. Aristotle didn't know about that, but he knew that it gave him, the, on, on that top level, it gave the man pleasure to do what was right. And for the Christian, those, these are those who enjoy what is right because they love God and take great delight in pleasing God. From Paul's list, the sin of wickedness would refer to those on the very bottom rung of human depravity. They are those who love wickedness and the destruction they leave in their wake. Then this covetousness. Covetousness is almost inescapable, it seems to me. But it's, a, it's an evil desire in man. It's a desire to have more always in a bad sense, the lexicon says. Um, it's a desire to have what belongs to others. All right, so I think we tend to miss the point of covetousness sometimes. There are two things I would say as to the character of this sin. First, to desire what God has not bestowed or has chosen to bestow on someone else and not you is to question God's wisdom and sovereignty. It's to not really let him be God in your consciousness, right? He blessed this person with all of these things that you don't have, and you're sort of not just mad at God, you're mad at that person that he has those things. It's a form of ingratitude for what you do have. And you'll find that gratitude is the antidote to covetousness. Be thankful for what you do have. 
You're not pleased with what God has given you because you perceive others have more. That's covetousness. What you have could be pleasing if not for the fact that you perceive a greater measure of blessing in others. In in other words, if you got everything you wanted in life, but someone else got something more, and you are therefore not happy with what you got, even though you would have been happy if that person never existed having more, that's covetousness. So covetousness tends to be a desire of things, not just because you don't have them, but because someone else does have them. I never was covetous over boats. I just liked having friends with boats because I know the two best days of boat ownership are the day you buy it and the day you sell it. I had a neighbor next door. He bought a boat. And you know what the name of the boat was? Stress reliever, right? The name of the boat was stress reliever. I think I saw him take it out of the yard one time. And then I saw him weed whacking around it about two years later. And he was always in there with that cover off working on that engine. And so I decided not to be friends with him anymore. I, I found a friend that had a working boat that, was, that lived on the pond, and we hung out with them instead. I was too smart to covet a boat. Maliciousness, kakia, the desire to inflict misery, pain, injury, or suffering, either out of hostile impulse or deep-seated meanness. Some people are just mean. Maliciousness. Have you ever watched a child inflict pain on another child? No one's looking. Just, you, you're laughing. You know it's true. I know some of the parents have said, I've watched him do this to his brother. I couldn't believe it. Ever see him? I, I saw a kid one time. I, I used to have a golden retriever. He's sitting there. The retriever was a nice dog. He, he never attacked anyone, never bit, never did any of those things. And this kid's poking him in the eye. And I'm thinking, that's just maliciousness. And he's lucky. This dog was like, Ruff! I mean, when he, you knew he was powerful when he decided to speak. But I, you know, um, I've seen that in kids. There's an inner love of harm to others, and you watch for it in children who inflict pain on animals. It's just there. It's part of the nature. Children are not innocent. We get to envy. Phthonus. Envy is the feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage of prosperity in others. Direct quote from the lexicon. You don't like hearing good news about someone else. It makes you sick. Oh, that's so good. Good for them. Good for them. Bless them. Oh, and you just don't mean it. You wanted that blessing. You wanted someone to say that about you. That's envy. It is rampant, friends. I, every time I see conflict between people, I suspect envy. I do. I suspect envy. So many conflicts just didn't have to happen. Now, sometimes it's confused with jealousy, and it's very similar to jealousy, but the lexicon makes a distinction. Envy desires desires to deprive another of what he has. Jealousy desires to have the same thing or the same sort of thing. So jealousy is like, I just want to be equal with, my, with the guy I envy. But if you were really, so you're just jealous. If you were envious, you want to have more, you want him to have less. Then there's murder. Does anyone know what this is? Phonos. To kill another without cause. The unlawful slaying of one person by another. We believe the word to be self-explanatory until Jesus talked about murder. And we found out maybe we have committed murder. So Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger 
of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which is an old Jewish insult, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. It was actually in the law that you weren't allowed to call another Jew an empty-headed fool because he supposedly had God's grace in him. Um, In other words, friends, hatred is the root cause of murder. You know, they talk about hate crimes today. I'm like, so I guess there's these people running around committing murders that love those people. I, I don't know. I don't really understand the whole hate crime thing. The impulse to hurl insults comes from the same place as the impulse to extinguish another's life. Be careful with ad hominem attacks, all right? Then there's strife, eros, not eros. Eros means sexual love, but eros means strife. Strife is defined as a, an angry or bitter disagreement. That's strife. I might be disposed to add to this a love of angry disagreements, and I go to the scriptures for that for that advice. A malicious desire for contention, which probably arises out of envy or jealousy or hatred of the other party or parties involved. It's easy to get into strife with someone you don't like. You know, I would say to you, you know how telling someone off, you get that urge, I've had it with that person. I'm just going to straight tell them off. I'm going to unload both barrels on this guy verbally, right? That feels good for about one second. And then you feel stupid about it. I, I encourage you not to do that as a Christian. We don't unload. And it comes from hatred of other people and jealousy of other people. And that's why strife is so often considered a sin that distru- disrupts otherwise healthy, loving church families. It's very bad in the church. That's why Paul said to Timothy, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not in otherwise than what he just taught about doctrine, right? If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing. He is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. These things build on each other. When you don't like someone or you're envious, and you get that argument where you're just putting them in their place. That builds the hatred higher, which builds the, the envy higher, which builds the strife higher. These things feed each other. And the enemy knows this. So be aware of it. You think you're unloading. You think you're getting it off your chest. And really you're adding to the strife and the hatred that you have by telling the other guy off. Find another way of dealing with that. Then there's deceit, dollis. Deceit is bait, snare. Hence, craft, deceit, guilt. That's right from the lexicon. Um, So it's a snare. It's a trap. It may be translated as such in some editions. It might say that in your editions. Um, It's to tempt someone to believe a lie. I've always said that you could not be deceived and know it. Does that make sense? Can you be deceived and know you're deceived? Not really, because once you find out, you're not deceived anymore, right? But there is a sense in which you can be deceived and know it and like it. And I think that's where the depraved mind adds an ingredient to this. I have learned that deceit can be so ingrained that a known lie may be tenaciously held by a person as truth even after it's exposed. Did you ever expose somebody's misunderstanding of something as truth? And all they do is out of pride now. The next sin, right? All they do is out of pride, they defend it even more and they use more irrational defenses. 
And friends, this typifies news media today. When they're shown that what they've reported for months and months isn't true, they still go with it. It's amazing to me. That's the depraved mind, like I've, like I've never seen it. It's, it's ingrained deceit. So we see it in news media every day, and it's a grave evil, and it's the temptation of the serpent of old. Believe it, even though it's demonstrably untrue, then there's evil-mindedness, all right? Now, we come to words that are combinations of what we've already covered, and this may be rendered simply evildoer. Then there's whisperers, right? One commentary renders it a murmured enchantment. I think of, here of Jesus' statement to Nicodemus where he said to Nicodemus, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds would be exposed. Right? You ever hear anybody lean into the microphone and whisper at you? Um, beware the whispering child. You ever, when you were a kid, did your mother ever walk in the room and go, okay, what's going on? It's too quiet in here. My mother used to do that. You never trust the kids when it's quiet. And then you go in and find them playing so nicely, and, you were, and then you think you were bad. No, you were being wise. Then there's backbiters. <laughs> it's not literal. Um, elsewhere, your Bible might say slanderers. Be, you know, doesn't that make sense? A backbiter is a slanderer. Beware of defaming others. That's bearing false witness, right? Don't say something bad about some, someone else that may or may not be true. Don't get into that habit. Um, and be doubly aware of doing it with stealth and not face-to-face. Friends, a good rule is that if you're not willing to say something face-to-face, you probably shouldn't say it. It's probably not worth saying. And the test is if you're saying it behind someone's back, it's it's a really evil thing. It's easy to fall into. Repent of it quickly. Then there's haters of God, right? Theostagites, haters of God. This is where Paul sort of takes a pause and sums up all the rest. (laughs) Um, For a person who still holds to the qualities of sinful thoughts and habits as they're here listed are certainly haters of God. If I've read all these things, and what you're coming away with is, um, I don't have any of those things, and I don't really care what God says about those things, because frankly I disagree with everything that's just been said. Call yourself what you are. You're a hater of God. That's what Paul's saying. Calvin comments on this point in the text where he says, there's no reason to take it in a passive sense, haters of God. It's an active thing, right? Since Paul here proves men to be guilty by manifest vices, those then are designated who hate God, whose justice they seem to resist by doing wrong. Whisperers, slanderers, are to be thus distinguished. The former, by secret accusation, break off the friendships of good men, inflame their minds with anger, defame the innocent, sow discords, and the latter, through an innate malignity, spare the reputation of no man. And as though they were instigated by the fury of evil speaking, they revile the deserving as well as the undeserving. And so he's showing that whisperers do the same thing as slanderers, only they do it behind your back. And the slanderer has no problem just coming out to your face with it. Both are an abominable evil before God. And then he goes on with the list to include violent. Friends, all of these hateful things can turn into violence. Inner violence will eventually metastasize into outward violence. And the violence and the violent will be filled with an evil sense of satisfaction. And that satisfaction the apostle calls pride or boasting. 
And that's those who are filled with pride for the evil they've just inflicted. They're happy about it. They're proud of it. They're bragging about it, right? Then there's inventors of evil things. In one of my old Bibles, right next to inventors of evil things, I wrote Dr. Kevorkian. That's, that is a thing that goes back where uh, euthanasia was trying to be legalized, and it is now in some states, I think, right? And um, Dr. Kevorkian made a machine where he didn't have to come in and euthanize you. You could euthanize yourself, even if you were pretty uh, you know, um, unable to do anything. You were a pretty crippled person. He made it very easy for you to drop yourself the cyanide pill. It's like, wow, what thought that took. I always think that's like the guy that created the flamethrower. I mean, who thinks of these things? I hate those people. I wish I had a gun that threw fire across the river and burned them all down. I mean, inventors of evil things. Uh, we're not to assume that the wicked are not creative. They keep coming up with these things. You know, the, the abortion pill. Think of it. They'll certainly find new and interesting ways to ply their craft. Inventors of evil things. Disobedience to parents. Don't be surprised to find this on the list. Children are not innocent, as we've said. If that's your opinion, you need to be more careful in your observations of their desires, their motives, and the innate ability to manipulate a situation to their own advantage. Did you ever have a child come to you and say, um, Mommy, can I do such and such? And she'll say, Ask your father. And he goes into the father and he says, Dad, I'm going to go down here because Mom just said I could. I mean, this is a normal thing, but it's evil. It's manipulative. Kids learn that right away. Then there's undiscerning. Friends, did you know ignorance is sin? You can't just be stupid when there was a way for you to not be. Undiscerning means without understanding. Ignorance is a form of evil. Even a simple person should have had an inner sense of good and evil. Ignorance, as they say, is no excuse. Untrustworthy. Did you ever hear the saying, never lend out your chainsaw? You never heard that? I don't know, maybe I made it up. I thought it was a thing. But a chainsaw is a highly high-maintenance dangerous tool. Do you have a chainsaw? I find when I use my chainsaw, every five minutes I'm fixing it, I'm tightening the chain, or, or, you know, every few cuts I got to shop and the thing it takes forever. I, I really, I'm not a big fan of the chainsaw. I wish they'd come up with better technology. I'm thinking lightsaber. Uh, but um, the chainsaw, and it's very easy to hurt yourself with a chainsaw, so you don't lend your chainsaw, okay, to an untrustworthy person. <laughs> because... Um, if the borrower doesn't break it, he'll sue you for the injuries he caused himself while using it. And the reason behind the warning is um, some people simply can't be trusted with your stuff. It begins as a small defect, but left unchecked, it increases to a serious fault. Ken used to say, never lend what you can't afford to give. Then you can't be mad at the guy when he doesn't pay you back, right? Oh, you broke it. Don't worry about it. It's going to get a new one anyway. By the way, if you want to lend... If you want to borrow mine, you can, because I am going to get a new one. But unloving, unforgiving, friends, these are two sides of the same coin. Forgiveness comes easy to those we love. Did you ever notice that? You ever notice people forgive their own kids a lot faster than they forgive other people's kids for doing the same or less things? Love and forgiveness are very closely related. It's easy to forgive someone you love. It's sinfully difficult when love isn't present. You've got to watch yourself, because we tend to be... It always amazes me how unforgiving the body of Christ can be. And that's because, I'll tell you right now, it's because you don't love that person. And you really have to cultivate love in yourself. And it's a serious thing, and it leads to 
becoming unmerciful. Because not being forgiving is a, is a form of unmerciful, right? God is forgiving and merciful and loving. They all sort of go together. This is the older brother of the former two evils, unmerciful. Mercy comes hard to those we hold a grudge against, to those who mean little to us. Friends, I'm going to tell you this. I've told you before. You cannot get into heaven with a grudge. You are required to forgive because God forgave you. Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brother, how will your heavenly Father forgive you? You don't get into heaven unless you're forgiven. So if you're forgiven, you have to be forgiving. It's a very serious sin. It's a grave evil to those who gladly celebrate God's mercy to them. It's even worse when you recognize what God's forgiven you of. How many parables are there about this? And the one who owed you something, you took the task on it, where God just forgave you. Augustine held that mercy is a strictly Christian virtue, friends. I don't know if that's correct. I think it can be demonstrated in other people. But if you can't find it in your heart, find forgiveness in your heart or mercy toward others, you're not the son of a merciful father. That concludes my remarks for this week. I'll pick up with it again next week. Oh, Father, be merciful to the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.